0: We are on number 277. This is class number 68. So, a hundred and something probably. The master was under no illusion that his or that any other organization was perfect, for mankind itself is not perfect. Don't speak of the bad side of the organization, he told us. If I wanted to list all its faults, I could start now and never stop. By concentrating on that side, however, one loses sight of the, of the good. And there is also much good here. Doctors say that millions of terrible germs pass constantly through our bodies. Most of them don't affect us, partly because we aren't even aware of them. Knowledge of their presence might make us more susceptible by causing us to concentrate on them That is what one should do here. Do not concentrate on the negative side. When you look at that side long enough, you take on its qualities. But when you look at the good, you take on goodness. That's just really so beautifully said, isn't it? You know, he's talking, he was talking about SRF and the people at the time. And Swami Kriyananda tells us that story about when he was a young monk there and the monks started this committee that Swamiji was under the impression that Master wanted them to reorganize everything, and that, in fact, it was really just a reason to say what, why everything was such a mess, and that whoever the young monks were, they were going to fix it. And then, of course, Swami found out that Master wasn't behind it at all. It was just people wanting to say that things were wrong. You know, I don't, I don't feel that that happens very much, at least not in, in my hearing anymore, that people are just sitting and complaining about the way things are done i'm not really quite sure but i'm very glad it's not there but it is an easy thing to get into and i'll just i'll just tell one story in that context during the time that i worked for swamiji this was after i worked for him so i'm not quite sure maybe he shared the letter with me but this man had written a letter there was there were things going on at the at the um, expanding light at that time. I really don't remember who was in charge or what. But it wasn't being run as well as it might be. Because when you're running an ashram, you don't advertise in the paper and then hire for talent. You take the people that God has sent you and you try to give them useful work. And um, sometimes people are given responsibility to work out their karma, not necessarily because they're good at what they're doing. Um or even competent at what they're doing, or they may be given the job because it's spiritually good for them, and the project will just limp along, and however it's going to limp along. That's not an excuse for incompetence or lack of excellence, but it's just a fact. So someone said whatever was going on at the retreat, the guest facility, it wasn't as effective as it might have been. And this man wrote a very thoughtful and extremely intelligent letter explaining what the limitations of the present management were and what things might be done to make it better. I was impressed with the letter because it was intelligently written and it, it seemed thoughtful to me. It wasn't just a blast. And I, I think Swami must have done this for my sake because I can't ever remember him doing this. He read the letter, he crumpled it up in his hands and he threw it over onto the floor. And he said, anybody can tell me what's wrong with the situation. He says, I want somebody who will say, I'll take responsibility, I'll fix it. And that was the, just like the difference between that. And I recall when I was, uh, um, when, we were, when our place was over in uh, California Avenue, um, there was a man, a very good friend, who's a wonderful person. This was just, he was having a bad night. And he was in charge of the whole sound and recording system. And overall, he did a really good job but something had happened oh, i know what it was we did on cassettes at that point and somebody made the arbitrary decision that if it if my talk or class filled the front and the back and then kept going that they wouldn't bother to record the end that front and back was enough yeah and i didn't know this at all and it it came to a head when i told the story of the mahabharata and they stopped recording before everyone was dead. <laughs> and you know that that story's not over till everyone is dead. So like the last 20 minutes were not recorded. That was when I found out that it was the policy to just stop. Not the policy, just somebody was doing it. Yeah, and I I I wasn't nice. <laughs> I had a very strong response to that. But the individual who was responsible for the whole situation told me that it wasn't really his fault. It was that he had to work with all these volunteers and they weren't that competent. I said, you know, that's why you're in charge. It's your job. Don't tell me that your job is hard. Of course it's hard. That's the whole point. That's not any excuse. And he was good enough to recognize that was not so. I was not very nice. But that is many ways in which we do. It isn't just that we criticize. It's just that we have a situation. I mean, it's fair to say, you know, people are doing the best they can. I'm doing the best I can. We just have to put up with a certain level of whatever is. Um, that's perfectly reasonable because that is the way it is sometimes. You know, many times I've Swami would ask me why something happened and I said, because that was the best that people could do. He was always very understanding of that. But just the inclination to think about limitation and think about it in our own lives, it is such an insidious, terrible habit. It's just as simple as that. It's a horrible habit. And many people have it in spades. They never notice what they do well. They only notice what they do wrong. They never think about all their fine qualities. They only think about their limitations. And it's just... uh, um, I mean, it just couldn't be worse. Because you see, what happens is, when you die, your orientation is toward all your failures. So you're born with this sort of predisposition toward considering yourself a failure and continuing to focus on your failures. And it just never stops. It really never stops. The, the danger of it cannot be overstated. I mean, I remember you've heard me say at a certain point when I realized how seriously I constantly... I just took my talents for granted and only thought about my failures. And I could have just so easily just ignored my failures and concentrated on my talents. But that was when I decided that I was a pretty nice person. And that became my little mantra. Whatever else I can or can't do, I'm a pretty nice person. (laughs) Because I needed a positive self definition that i i that was low enough <laughs> that i couldn't put a failure under you know a failure on top of it um and it's the same if you're dealing with ananda i mean pe- sometimes people they come here and they're so enthusiastic and then they love it and then they'll have like a bad interaction with someone you know somebody who surprise surprise is not a self-realized master and has a bad day and behaves in a in what may quite objectively be a terrible way. And then they decide that Mananda is not worth it. But it's the habit of seeing what's bad uh, and not, just as simple as Master said, nothing in this world is perfect. No organization is perfect. No situation is perfect. People don't come to an ashram because they're saints. They come because they want to become saints. But if you have the habit of perceiving negativity in yourself or others, and just don't. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And just every time you hear it. And sometimes people have it in their voices. The voice is always, just a little like that. You know, just like we had a really nice time. There was one person who just had such a habit. Every day I would say... You know, good morning. You're traveling together. Good morning. And, you know, or did you sleep well? Or, or, you know, did you have a good day yesterday? And they would always go, Ew. <laughs> And I just, you know, just kept at it. I don't think they ever really got it. I just wanted them to say, yeah, it was a great day yesterday. Today's going to be a fabulous day. Instead of, Ew. Listen to the tone of your own voice. You know, when somebody asks you how you are, it's not that you have to be insincere. Well, you remember that story that Master said? Swami asked Master asked Swami, "How are you?" And Swami said, "Well." And Master said, "That's good." <laughs> you know, well, that's all he heard. I'm well. <laughs> Even if things are terrible, you can still say they're terrible, in a tone of voice that is really recognizing that's good. You know, like, yeah, this could be the worst period of my life. Yeah, nothing is going well. This is a hundred percenter. Everything has collapsed around me. But it's not... "Eh." That's the part that's just so awful. I'm saying it over and over so you'll hear it, right? It's called whining. Oh. You know SRF published a, a book of. That's a commentary on the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Many of you have heard it. You probably know the name of it. David Gamma made up this joke. The joke is, you know, when will I find God? That's the wine of the mystic. (laughs) That may be irreverent, but it was awfully clever. (laughs) That's the name of their commentary wine of the mystic which is actually a very beautiful title but still. Okay. Are we all positively? How are you how feels everyone? Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but you know actually masters how feels everyone? Awake and ready. How is everyone? Awake and ready. And Swami Kriyananda's I'm I'm awake and ready. I'm positive, energetic, enthusiastic. It's it's just those are really That was so silly when he presented those and, you know, had us all saying, I'm positive, energetic, enthusiastic. And especially when he told you to jump out of bed in the morning and say that. It was just like, ooh, you know, who wants to? But it's a lot to it. Do do you want the microphone? Yeah. It's become such a habit to say awake and ready that sometimes at work when we are uh, sitting in a meeting and... boss man asks, how's everyone? I can't help but say awake and ready. (laughs) And I do. And it's uh, fun because everybody looks at me weirdly because it's kind of common practice to say that it's difficult or, um, you know, it's not going all that well. Perfect. Perfect. Pastor Tandava. On the subject of those exercises, it's really fun to teach in like med one or something because people always are either in their heads or actually rolling their eyes a little bit and you really just have to put it out there so much with your own energy that like, we're going to do this and it's going to be fun and then you get to watch them like finally relaxing into it wow. and having fun with it after they get, <laughs> get used to the idea of what we're doing. But that's, it's good practice to be able to convey it to other people. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I especially like to do it for Meditation One classes here in our temple. I did when I used to teach that class. Meditation One... The beginning meditation course is very often the first time any, a person will step into ananda. And, uh, and it is a, usually, generally speaking, I mean, of course, almost everybody who eventually becomes lifelong committed starts there. So many great souls come in through the door. But to say that it is a mixed group is putting it very mildly. And even those who are going to become deeply involved often haven't the foggiest idea what's going on. And um, And, you know, they see the pictures of the masters and uh, brahmacharis or, you know, nayaswamis. There's just so many things that they don't understand. And then, in an area like this, which where people are so professional and so businesslike and everybody's worried about the impression to have them all stand up and say, I'm awake and ready, I'm positive, energetic, enthusiastic. People will just look at you like, you've got to be kidding you you actually think I'm going to do this, and then just what Tandava said—just getting them to move—and then and then they're terribly embarrassed, and then everybody begins to laugh. And as soon as people begin to laugh, I mean, I usually say, "Look, the whole energy of the room is different." You know what? Was, what was everybody so afraid of? When did we stop being children and had to be grown-ups all the time? So it's it's a very it was really a superconscious inspiration on Swami's part to just—he he brought that in as part of the superconscious living system, which was an extremely, extremely serious proposition that he made. And then he included having us march in place and wave our arms and jump up and down. But why not? You know, you have to ask yourself why am I so inhibited from doing it? We're—we've we're, lost our childlike enthusiasm. Very, very good, but it's all part of emphasizing the positive. We teach it to the children. I'm going to say one more thing. In, if you go into our our school classrooms, you'll find these charts called uh, "Choosing Happiness," practicing uh, Choosing Happiness, practicing kindness, and, and you'll see all the kids' names with stickers. And normally, when you see something like that, it's a competitive situation. It's it's like somebody chooses happiness more than others, so. Here's the curmudgeon, and here's the cheerful one. you know schools make a terrible mistake by making so many things competitive because then somebody's ahead and somebody's behind, and it's just it's a nightmare system for children. So you go in there and everybody has the same number of stickers and so it's it's very confusing when parents first come in, but it's actually a much more subtle practice than it seems because what happens is if I, if I remember this correctly, but this is how it was explained to me, the children, it's not so much that they themselves say, I was a good girl, I was a good boy, is they notice when people are choosing happiness and they notice when people are practicing kindness and they come in and everybody celebrates. And so what they're training the children is to observe the positive and pay attention to what's happening that's good. And every time it happens, they all get to make a mark because it happened, not because I did it. You see how much more important that is? Because the way I went to school, it was just if I could excel, then I got the gold stars and I got more than the others. And I never noticed who was behind me. I only noticed what I was doing. It was 100% the opposite. It was like also um, when we we were first starting our school, we took a little field trip to some of the uh, more... um, prestigious, well-established schools around here. We went to a couple, which I won't name, which were really considered to be the top schools. And now everybody teaches self-esteem and so on like that. So in one of these schools, they um, had in the classroom, they had this tree, and it was called the self-esteem tree or something like that. And children would put leaves on the tree and they would write things that made them have a sense of themselves. There was this tree which was covered with quite a few leaves and we stood there for some time and pretty much read them all. Every single one, which was maybe 30 or 40, every single one except for one dealt with an external accomplishment. So every one of those children had self-worth because of what they were able to achieve in the world. Which of course means as soon as they can't achieve it, they, they don't feel well anymore. It was just like absolutely setting them up to suffer. And absolutely setting them up to be dependent on circumstances they can't control for their sense of self-worth. One child wrote something like, I'm not as moody as I used to be. But the others were, I scored in soccer, I got 100% on my test, I was first on this. Every one of them was competitive, success-oriented, just like their parents. Like, where is the happiness in that? And it's, it was well-intentioned, but horribly misguided. You know, a lot of local schools, either coincidentally or actually, over the course of the 25 years that we've been here, they've picked up our vocabulary. We start talking about joy. We suddenly everybody's talking about joy. We start talking about universal spirituality or something. Everybody's talking about. You know, it's just really quite consistently. Either thoughts are universal, or people, which I would be not surprised, say that looks good. I'll paste it on there. But with all due respect for the fact that many good people exist in many places, most, all, they don't actually know what they're doing because they're not starting from the inside out. So it's well-intentioned and perhaps it's better than nothing. I really don't know whether it's better than nothing because it isn't really training people to have real strength. It's training people to measure themselves by an external standard, which sooner or later is going to blow up in their face, whether because the economy crashes and they lose their job or because their wife has a car accident and, you know, everything changes or the son turns out to be a drug addict. I mean, you know, whatever it might be. And uh, it's tragic. It's just absolutely tragic. Now, let me just find it. And it all starts with just what he's saying. we train ourselves to observe the positive. Because once you start thinking about what's bad, there's really no end to it. And what is it going to do? If you're not going to take responsibility for fixing it, what does it matter? It's just the world is half and half. So which side are we going to live in? I had a very interesting... Twice I had this. I did a woman's... I used to do women's retreats all in the first... You know, I've been doing this here for some 30 years and... In the first years, I often did women's retreats because so many women would come. And, and you know, women are so uh, garrulous. And and it, it's fun. Women's retreats are fun because, you know, five minutes after you start, women are saying anything that they want to say. And everybody's a soul sister. And, and it's a good thing that the men don't really know what goes on in those <laughs> retreats. But anyway. Um, so... We would have people introduce themselves around the room, and you know, that could take a good hour because that was just how everything started. <clears throat> so, I remember once I decided because I had watched what happened a lot, and often the women would start talking about whatever it was that was the anguish of the moment, and the anguish of the moment was often about some lack of something in themselves, some recent failure, some disappointment they were trying to get over. So I said, I want all of you to introduce yourselves in terms of your most positive attributes. Just tell us the most positive things about you. And what was fascinating to me is it would usually last about two and a half women. And then halfway through, the third woman would begin to talk about what was, what was so wrong with her that was causing her so much grief. The third woman would pick it up right... The fourth woman would pick it up right there and I'd usually let it go for like one and a half and then I would point out what happened. And everybody would resolve to be positive again and it would just sink time after time. And that is the issue. Nothing that anybody did was the issue. The issue was why, when you could just as easily, because all of the women were, you know, who would ever come to anything here, also have... You know, uh, a boatload of positive attributes, because you you basically can't live in this area unless you have something together. Otherwise, you just can't survive here. But they would just never say it. And then I did it once. When I my my corporate training career was very short. (laughs) It was colorful and it was interesting while it lasted, but it was very short because it's just way not my thing. And and. For one point, it went into some kind of leadership. I did some kind of leadership training. Let me think how to get this right. Training leaders, it doesn't matter what it was. But I tried to explain people about the principle of going with your strengths. Just work with what's good about yourself and concentrate on increasing what's good and that will pull everything else with you. And I really practically had a revolt on my hands. It's like no one in the room could even understand the concept. It was absolutely necessary to... to, I know what I was trying to do. I was trying to tell them to encourage their employees that way. But they they talked about themselves. Everybody was absolutely convinced. Unless I focus on what's wrong with me, I will never get better. I tried all the different ways that you can see the fallacy of that, such as it makes you not want to get out of bed in the morning and makes you depressed and afraid and anxious and make a long list compared to thinking another way. But I just, I couldn't budge them. That was when I thought, this is not my work, you know. It was just because I couldn't draw on the whole metaphysical story that that goes with that. Thoughts are universal, it's just what you tune into, reality is, is completely shifting all the time. Today you, you think you're terrible and tomorrow you think you're fine, even though really nothing has happened in between. It's just that you've decided to look at a different facet of the jewel than the one that you were looking at. It's so amazing when you start paying attention of how completely random the mood of the moment is and how, how quickly and just childishly it can shift, which makes you really wonder what I am at all. Who am I at all? I mean it can make you a little crazy but don't go there. <laughs> it's just why not? And, and you know I come down I- in our context I am the disciple of a great master. It's like just think how many incarnations it took us to be able to say those words. I am a disciple of a great master. Or in any way, I've been inspired by a great master, you know. In the room now, we're all disciples, but people hear this. But, you know, I want truth. Just walk down the street, how many people want truth? They want a lot of, of things. But where does truth figure in it? I mean, it's like we have, we have so many reasons to, to feel appropriate regard for our own consciousness, that what's wrong with us is trivial by comparison. Also because once that desire for God is planted, that's really all that matters. Because everything else is doomed, <laughs> which is really a fun thought. It's just like once you have that, no matter how many t- times you, you dive deep in the wrong pool, <laughs> uh, it just won't take that very long before you realize it's not going to work for me. It's just not going to work for me. And that, that's what we're. That's all that matters about ourselves, about other people, about organizations. And, and what's, what's so much fun, I was talking to a, a long-time friend yesterday. We've both been at this for decades. And we were talking about a very difficult situation in which certain individuals that we were talking about have shortcomings that are fairly self-evident and those shortcomings cause inconvenience for other people and, you know, and and we talked for a few minutes and then I laughed and I said Swami Kriyananda would be proud of us I said we both managed to speak the truth to each other without saying an unkind word <laughs> which was true because you can tell the truth without concentrating on the bad, you don't have to be a goody-goody you just say it. Swami Kriyananda's marvelous remark. Let me think. I think it started with Jyotish and Devi. This is their story, but I'll tell it as best I can. They were talking about somebody who may in fact have been running the guest programs at the time. And there was, they were, you know, there was some complaint about how he was working and they were sort of talking to Swami about him and Swami just said, you know, I think he's doing a very good job considering who he is. <laughs> And then later on, I don't know the context, but Jyotish and Devi themselves felt somewhat insecure about it, their responsibilities or their ability to carry out. And they sort of asked Swami, you know, how do you think we're doing? I think you're doing very well. And then he smiled, considering who you are. <laughs> but really, that who else could you be? I, I think I've shared with you sometimes in in the position of um, responsibility, which I've been in a lot of times in my life. Sometimes people fail to see you as an individual or as a person; they see you as a position, and they begin to respond to the position, and, and they d- they just don't understand what they're saying. But I've had two two my two favorites. The first one was the man who came to me and really wanted me to know that I was doing a terrible job of being a leader in this community. Just a terrible job. And he gave me some specifics. And by the grace of God, I just said, do you think if I had mastered this job I would still be doing it? Like, of course, you know, of course I am not good at this. Why would I be here if I were good at this? You see how, I mean, it's just like a reverse. We think that you should be expert at something. But if you're expert at something, what are you gaining from it? What's what's in it for you at that point? You're just repeating yourself and you're gradually uh, atrophying. Swami would never leave me in a position where I was atrophying. He would have to give me something that was appropriately too big. And uh, the, the, the man was so startled that, that I gradually won him over. <laughs> and, and that was just the grace of God that I wasn't offensive. And the other one was, this man said, You know, a lot of people think you're inspiring, but I don't. I don't think you're inspiring at all. (laughs) And again, my first response was just sympathy. At that time, I was practically the only teacher here. I said, oh, that must be horrible for you. I talk all the time. (laughs) I didn't win him over. (laughs) That was the same man who said to me, you know, you can help people to a certain point, but after that, you don't really have much to give. (laughs) I mean, do people just say the darndest things? I said, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, like, did I ever say that I was other than that? Thank God, I'm not the, I'm not the, I'm not the uh, first car in the train, you know? You can just keep on walking right past me. It's fine. But that's how people think. And so and that's, we have to be very careful that we're not thinking like that. People just give what they give. Uh, one more man like this. He was from New York. He was a very, very New York sort of person, and uh, in this case it was charming. He had a very sweet heart, but he had a very New York manner. I gave a class at Spiritual Renewal Week and afterwards a number of people were st- really standing in line to speak to me, and because people were chatting, chatting, he had to wait like maybe ten minutes, and I just saw him waiting and waiting and waiting. And when he finally came up to me, he told me the two or three things that he thought I would said incorrectly and told me how I thought I could do them better. But I knew he was actually saying, "I loved what you did, thank you so much." but he did not know how to be positive. He just was so in the habit of being critical that he thought this is how he would help me. He would tell me what was wrong with me, and because I could feel his heart, I just I laughed, and you know, I thanked him because of course, nothing is perfect, but it was the most interesting thing to me to see how profound that that even when his entire impulse was positive, his habit was so negative that he expressed it in a negative way. I mean, don't ever be casual about these things. Don't ever think it doesn't matter. Suman. Asha, I don't know if I read it here in these teachings or whether it's just, you know, psychological babble, but sometimes people say that when you see negativity in someone else or you're criticizing, it's really the lack in you. Is there truth to that? Well, or? there's a difference between discrimination and judgment. All right. Because Swami Kriyananda discerned people's strengths and weaknesses literally in an instant. He knew exactly who he was dealing with all the time. But there wasn't an ounce of judgment in it. It was just, he, he said. He saw, he saw all sentient beings, all beings, including animals, he said, just as consciousness arrayed on a spectrum between delusion and final liberation. So a dog was really just the same as a human being, it was just less conscious and working with a different karmic set than this one. So, in his position, which is really our position, where how can I serve, how can I help, how can I love? It's a good idea to know what's going to be useful. It's a good idea what a person's next step might be, so you don't underestimate them or overestimate them. So discernment is, is, is God-given. But to discern that, oh, this would be a helpful direction, this would be helpful advice, this is something this person could benefit from knowing, doesn't imply anything except a perception of reality. To say, oh, how could he be like that? How could she wear that dress? Why did she say such a thing like that? Really, if she talks to me like that one more time, I'm just going to blow my top, you know? That sort of thing. What you're doing is you're... Well, the reason where that comes from is something about that action... You, 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 there's something in you that is made uncomfortable by that action and you want to get rid of it you want to suppress it you want to push it away if a person is just unpleasant in any way that they might be unpleasant but it, it doesn't make you anxious then you just perceive their unpleasantness and make a decision about what to do but if, if their unpleasantness frightens you embarrasses you or is too close to your own nature. I had an experience just a few days ago where I was just going along doing something in this temple. And, you know, you all know I've been in this temple for a really long time. And then someone, there was a, a I don't want to give the details because it's not, it's not relevant and I don't want to. But, but there was a situation where what I needed to do was self-evident because I've been doing it for decades. And in fact, I I invented the system. You know, Not that everyone has to know that, but I knew. But then this other person suddenly became anxious that I didn't know that, and so told me what to do. And it was like, just for an instant, it was like, are you kidding? Like, what makes you think I need to know this? But I, I didn't have any negativity. It was just more like the thought was, why would you say that to me? And then I just realized it was so obvious. And I also realized that I myself used to do that to people. The person just suddenly got nervous that the situation was out of control. And so they tried to, to make, take control again. And, and as a result, if I had wanted to, I could have felt quite insulted or many other things. But by the grace of God, I didn't at all. I just thought, oh, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when the world has to be a certain way, and if it steps outside of that, you have to react. And I didn't react at all, and I just passed over like that. But I thought, ooh, I've done that so many times in my life for exactly the same reason. And then people get real mad at me. They would get mad at me. And I couldn't figure out why. Because I got nervous that things were out of control, and so I said things to them that were insulting. It didn't have anything to do with them. It was just my anxiety. So yes, that's where it comes from. So if it causes you to become tense, the way I say it is, there's something in it for you. It's really not about that person, because the person is just what they're going to be. And this is what Swami would say, the the classic example, which is in my book, there was this couple in Rome and they were business associates through publishing. This man and his wife, very, 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 very worldly people, nonetheless they published Swami's books for a number of years. And uh, Swamiji went out to dinner with the couple and Prahlad, who was working with him in Italy, who used to, used to live at Ananda, still a good friend. And after the dinner, Pralad says to Swamiji, oh my God, I'm so glad to get away from that couple. The negativity between them was just so thick. He said, you could cut it with a knife. And Swami sort of says, really, was it? Like that. And Prahlad was just like, How could you not notice? So Swami actually put his mind to it. And he realized that the entire evening he'd been trying to suggest ways to be harmonious, suggest ways to be positive. But he never named what was going on as negativity, and he never reacted to their disharmony. He just intuitively kept trying to turn it in another direction. It was very, very instructive, whereas the other man saw it differently. Because, of course, he wasn't as free as Swamiji was and he wasn't thinking as much about what to give. He was thinking more about, this is an unpleasant evening and I'm not having any fun. Does that make sense? Yes. Sometimes Sometimes I think at a soul level, and I think I've read this in Swamiji's writings, that even sometimes when you criticize someone... you might end it with a little joke or something because at a soul level it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. Yeah. And when you get sensitive to it, mm-hmm. when people say critical things, it, it, hurt, it hurts your heart. Mm-hmm. It hurts your heart for the people who's being criticized and it hurts your heart for the person who is saying it. Like, Why would you want to say something like that? What is that going to do for you? And so, and so it becomes a question, your, one's response is not judgmental on any side. It's just compassionate for everyone. Oh my, all these people are just setting up trouble for themselves. Where is this going to go? And that, after a while, that becomes instinctive. I mean, karmas are different. Some, it's very interesting. Um, my friend Durga, whom I often refer to, I have had many characteristics that have annoyed a lot of people. But they never annoyed her. And it wasn't that I was really different with her. I was exactly the same. She found me amazing at times, that I would think that, that was a, a good way to behave, she was astonished by my behavior, but she was never put off by it. Just karma, you know. And I have relationships with people that I get along with fine. And other people find so difficult. And I see the same things, it's just the karma doesn't capture me. So it's, it's all a bit individual and gives us its grits for the mill. The other night uh, we were having a small gathering and someone remarked that, you know, all his relationships at Ananda were just positive and harmonious and he just never had any trouble. I said, oh, you will. <laughs> I didn't mean it to be unkind, but of course you will. Because well, Swamiji said it beautifully. This is a very, very old family. He said, a very old family, we've all been together for so many incarnations, the beautiful phrase he used, we've all been all all in all to one another. So every possible permutation of interaction we've had, and many of them are not resolved. So attractions, repulsions, negativities, and you know, you, you get, every so often you get groups of people at Ananda or little teams together and the happy phrase we use is they all manage to bring the worst out of one another. <laughs> you, know? you get five good people and they all just manage to just, every one of them to just behave terribly. And you take those same people and you put them somewhere else and they're fine. It's, it's just the karma and it's good. That's why we're here is to finish all of this. Okay. It's not so simple though just to say, oh, this must be about me. Because it's also about them. <laughs> I'm just wondering, in that case, what's a positive or constructive way to, to deal with such a situation? You know, not, not to judge someone, not to react, but what do you do that's beneficial to, to you, to, you know, to them and all that? There is no formula because it all depends on what is forward for you. And, you know, and for some people, to just lose your temper and tell someone that, I am just so sick of this, I'm never going to put up with you again, put all their stuff in a garbage bag and you know, put it outside the house. For some people, that's progress. If somebody has really been taking advantage of your goodwill and you've just had it, you just need to lose your temper and just act. For someone else, that would be the last thing in the world that's positive. For some, one person to suppress, or I would say to discipline their emotions and not always be speaking every fool thing that crosses their mind, would be progress. For someone else to, to just say what you feel, no matter how people take it, that's forward progress. So one of the ways to think about it is like this. To be impersonal means to be impersonal about yourself, not see yourself as different from anyone. That means not more than anyone else, more important, more anything, but simultaneously not less important. So you, you just have to look at a situation impersonally and just think, what's, what is the, what's the truth here? Who needs, who needs what in this situation? Who's capable of giving what? And then you make up your mind. Nice is not the same as spiritual progress. It just isn't. I, I said to Swami once on a certain situation, I said, but sir, I get so emotional about it. I, I've always been somewhat emotional, but I was much more so when I was younger. And, and I said, I just don't want to talk when I'm so emotional. Sometimes you su- should, he said. I said, sometimes I just fly off the handle. He said, sometimes it's good to fly off the handle. Wow. I, you know It was like, I didn't expect that answer. But in my case, I didn't speak up, but I continued to judge. So I was, yeah. So I was. It was. Be- it would be better for me to put it forward than it would be. To, he's, you know, it borders on treachery. Was the word he used? To not put your thoughts forward, but then continue to undermine. Do one thing and you see the result you get and the next time you know that maybe that's not, it's didn't work out well. And the whatever. crash and burn system of spiritual right, progress, right. which um, is not necessarily for everyone, but it's, it, if, you, if you put the energy out, and this is what Swami was saying to me, if you put the energy out there, at least you can work with it. If you merely suppress it, it's, it's influencing you, it's twisting you, but you don't even know what it is. So uh, There was a woman in in our community who was very, very hot-headed, very hot-headed, very (laughs) hot-headed. And so we said, well, at least you always know where you stand with her. (laughs) You know, it was just such a a, a nice way to... Because you always did. You never had... There was never any doubt about what she thought. And in a way, it was very relaxing, even if she was hot, because it was there. It was all out on the table. Someone else said that, that, you know... um, so and so looks like they, how did how did they say it? So and so looks like they're positive all the time, but they're just hiding their negativity. Whereas all my negativity is on the table. <laughs> and and I I thought about that a lot, and I thought, yeah, you know, it's he, this person appears to be more negative, but they're just more honest, and so everybody knows where they stand. They know what you're working with. But these things are extremely subtle, and my advice to people is. For some reason, uh, everybody protects their weaknesses as if they're the only ones who have them. And, you know, especially in relationships or marriages or friendship or business, but especially in personal relationships, people just protect and we don't want anybody to know, we don't want to talk about it. And But the fact of the matter is, how are you ever going to learn? It's not that you have to put up billboards, but you need to cultivate people in your life to whom you can speak the whole story. Because how, why should we know? Why should we know how to be married or to be friends or to be parents? But people just have this idea in their head that they're supposed to know. But we don't. We need to be coached. You know, I, I was very fortunate to be coached by Swami Kriyananda. I feel like I arrived, I was maybe seven years old. I was 24. But I was about seven in terms of knowing myself and knowing how to behave. And he I, he just he, he taught me how to be an adult. Because I was taught to be an adult, I realized, wow, well, a person has to be taught to be an adult. You don't just grow up and become an adult. You have to just see it over and over. There's community. And you either embrace it or it, it pounds on your closed door. But if you embrace it, then you get this enormous benefit. Why else are we... I mean, what is the benefit of community? It's not to look good in front of your friends. It's to look like yourself in front of your friends, so that they can help you be a better self. Ananda it, Ananda's extraordinary, I mean, absolutely extraordinary in the kindness and the way people take care of each other. It's all because of Kriyananda. He set the, he set the tone. You know, people in this community, just we just we we just do the wackiest things sometimes. And, you know, you do it today and tomorrow it's forgotten. I, uh, money in the bank is how we always say about it. You, you forgive and forget today. I forgive and forget about you today. Tomorrow you forgive and forget about me. <laughs> you know, it's just like I want to keep the account really high. I want everybody to owe me big time. <laughs> well, any other comments before we take a little break? All right, let's take a little break. <laughs> um, I was asked two questions during our brief break, so I'll, I'll probably just answer them. I'll start by answering them. The first one was related to Master's questions of, of what Master said here about. Um, scientists say that thousands of jobs, f- uh, millions of terrible germs pass constantly through our bodies. But most of them don't affect us, partly because we aren't even aware of them. Knowledge of their presence might make us more susceptible by causing us to concentrate on them. So someone was asking me, you know, recently because it's been flu season, uh, people have been imposing on him the necessity to take oregano oil, which is something that he would never have crossed his mind. But now it's that it's crossed his mind, is, that, is it better not to... I think it's one of those questions like the one that came just before the break. You really have to ask yourself whether you are genuinely responding to an intuitive sense of your own reality or whether you're just imposing a mental concept on yourself. There was a woman in our community who came down with very serious cancer. By the time it was diagnosed, it was stage probably stage four. And even though she lived for quite a few years longer than anyone expected and took a lot of of the allopathic treatments at the beginning she said she said something like you know she she knew it was possible to cure herself by natural means or by the power of the mind and so she wanted to do that and swamiji just looked at her like this and said Do you have the power and the discipline to do that? And she thought for a minute, she said, No, sir. So, yes, it, it is possible to cure yourself by the power of the mind, but do you have the power and the discipline to do that? And she was honest enough to realize, no, she really didn't. She knew herself. She knew that she just she couldn't persuade herself powerfully enough that the cancer didn't exist. On the other hand, I've known two cases of women who had very serious cancer, but they also had a small child in both cases, and they were a single parent. And, you know, they just didn't die. I mean, I'm talking decades later, they just didn't die because there was no question but that they were going to get over that cancer. And yes, they had the power and discipline to do it. Now, of course, mothers who love their children just as much, sometimes it's not their destiny. So I don't want to make people feel bad. But nonetheless, both of those women, it just was not an option. And they did have the power and discipline. So it's it's a very personal. But yes, too much preoccupation with all the things that might happen and too much anxiety about, Master himself says it, and if I don't get my avocado, my spine feels weak, whatever it might be. Y- you just have to pay attention. And uh, sometimes you're foolish. And sometimes, and sometimes you're foolish, sometimes you're lazy, sometimes you're in denial, and sometimes you're just authentically saying, I know this doesn't work for me. A friend of mine, interestingly, let me think how this was, homeopathy. Very dynamic individual with a great deal of physical and mental vitality. And, and uh, it was, uh, is his name Vasant Lad? One of the foremost homeopathic Ayurvedic. Ayurvedic. But anyway, he went to him, and the man said to my friend, he said, You're basically, your ambient level of energy is too high for what I'm going to offer. He said, it just won't work for you. You're, it just My treatments are not going to match your vibration, if I, if I have that accurate. I felt like it was homeopathy, but it might have been the whole of Ayurveda, which it wasn't that he didn't have advice. But he said, "You're already operating at such a point that these things are not going to affect you, not that nothing could affect you, but i can't I can't really give you anything because we're not going to match so you know it just depends and and also one cure for one person just doesn't resonate for another, and sometimes it's intuition and sometimes it's just laziness, and nobody can answer that question but yourself so you you don't want to impose a mental concept on myself. I, I, it's possible to he- heal myself. Therefore, I must. Therefore, I shall. Therefore, I will. When do you have the power and discipline to do it? No, not really. You need a an intermediary. So, but, but what he said is, if you concentrate on it all the time, you become very very paranoid, which people do become exceedingly paranoid. You know, I, I I've I've started. They have those uh, little things now where you can wipe off your grocery cart before you go in. At first, when I saw them, I just kind of shrugged, but then I was walking in the other day and I said, for heaven's sake, Sasha, why not do it? You know, Why not wipe it off? You have no idea whose person's hands were on this a minute ago. It was just sort of one of those things which I'd never thought about it. First I rejected it, and then I thought, don't be arrogant, you know, it's right there in front of you. Use it. So that's also a level. You just have to decide. Yeah. Um, this is something that you helped me with, in a way. Uh, my body does give me a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of things. And I remember saying, but I'm very persistent. I don't give up. And you said, good, you're learning willpower. And I, I always remember that. Because how does one always know how you're supposed to learn things? Exactly. You don't know. You don't even... See, that's why I, I was saying in some context... We all just ought to lighten up about everything because we don't even know what the test is sometimes. I mean, we really don't. We don't even know what aspect of ourselves is being challenged. We just make up some little story about it and then go on. But often we really haven't the foggiest idea until the whole thing is over. You know, we might have needed to be a continual failure just for the sake of being cheerful in the face of failure. You know, we may have been doomed never to succeed because success wasn't what we were supposed to learn. We're supposed to learn self-esteem without any external support for it. It's just, you just don't, you have no idea. So you just have to cheerfully persevere. It's easier for me to say at this stage of my life than it was when I was 30. But it, I just really feel like most of, the, most of what I worried about was a total waste of time. My perseverance on the spiritual path, my serviceful attitude, my energetic and creative spirit, those are good things. But most of what I worried about was just, why? At the time, though, I I was too nervous. If things moved out of control, I had to try to take control of them again. But why? Lighten up, you know? Okay, the other question was, someone who has a job as a um, perfecting websites where the the training is to see everything that's wrong. <laughs> and then it, it becomes a life skill to be able to always perceive how things can be repaired. Editors. I mean, pardon me? Editors. Editors. I, well, that was what I was going to say. I, I, I think I was home with the flu when I, when I learned the I and me when it was taught. I never really learned anything in school. My parents spoke good English, and I don't know if they they spoke it wrong or what, but I I never know whether you're supposed to say, I or me. Or let me say, I make that mistake continuously. I don't know any rules about grammar. I I never learned anything in school. I just sort of was born with a certain educated demeanor, and I've just faked it all the way through. Swami talks about the subjunctive case, and I still to this day have no idea what he's talking about. I, every so often, I think I ought to try to find out, but I don't want to. Um, but he he constantly corrected me because I would say I and me incorrectly. And somewhere very late in his life, uh, there was a woman in, doing a, lo- a program in Los Angeles, a radio program. I don't know how she knew about me, but she wanted Swami. She wanted somebody with Swamiji, who she could interview him and then interview me about him, but all of us there. It was a big radio, live radio program. And in the middle of it, I said, I was saying some, I was making some big serious point, and I did, I, re- I said I and me incorrectly. Swami just cut right in and corrected me like that. And, and at which point, it was so sweet, both of us just started to laugh. And the poor radio host just, you know, she couldn't, <laughs> she couldn't really understand I'm not sure how we explained it, but it was like, for 45 years, I kept making the same mistake, and then there it was, and even to the end of his life, he was correcting me. And that was, it wasn't then, but it was earlier when he said, the editor never sleeps, because he just, whenever he would hear it incorrect, he would fix it. Not just that, but many things. Now, it was beneficial to us that he was so wide awake and helpful. It's beneficial to be one of the people who can say, wow, I think this would work better if we did it this way. Most people are pleased when somebody puts out initiative and takes responsibility. It's not the putting out initiative and taking responsibility that is annoying. It's the high-handed indifference to everybody else's reality and the snobby belief that you're the only one who knows. That's what's annoying. But merely to be able to make things better, almost everyone is really glad to have things made better if it's done in a spirit of friendship and love. And any quality that we have that is highly developed and is overall useful, we should we need to just push it forward because we don't get better by taking what we're good at and, and lowering it. We get better by taking what we're not good at and making it as good as what we're good at. And we often drag our weaker qualities forward on the coattails of our best. And it's just the way it is. So, but if people are getting mad at you, if they're asking you to just, you know, give it a rest every once in a while, they're not, it's not really one's ability to perceive what's needed it's the It's the manner and the appropriateness in which it's being presented, and so and then you realize, oh there's a different quality here that needs to be worked on, so you don't get rid of it, you just work on the supporting attributes that will make this beneficial uh, many 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 years ago, when we were when I was running the publications business very badly at ananda village, there was a person who had a lot of talent, but had the karma for people not, had an unpleasant, what Swami called an unfortunate manner. She had an unfortunate manner. So even though she had a tremendous amount to give, nobody wanted it from her because she had such an unfortunate manner. She would, she would compel you to match her rhythm. And so she was just no fun to work with because, you, you know, you suddenly were in a straitjacket of of her, her demands. But because I had a position, she wanted me to declare her an essential channel through which certain work had to go. I told her, because I knew Ananda well, I said I could put signs up in four languages and if you're not helpful everyone will find a way around you, I promise it. You know, It's just not going to happen. You need to make yourself useful to people. Make yourself useful and you don't have to have a position. If you're not useful, and we're not the corporate world. If you're not useful, we can call you the king of the universe, and nobody's going to ask you a question. So that's how you have to think about yourself: is not, do I have this talent? Do I have that? How can I be helpful? What do people really want from me? You know, well, mostly people want to be loved, and if once you love them, then they're really quite interested in everything. But if they don't feel loved by you, Someone said that to me many years ago, I'm so grateful, two things. My friend said to me, you tell me my problems more clearly than I want to know them. That was really a great help. And the second one was, if you don't connect with me from the heart, I'm really not going to hear anything else you have to say. And I thought, wow, those are both really true. So I, I, I have this discerning ability and I have this innate ability. It's not that I actually know more than some people know, but I have this capacity to put every thought into words, which is a really, it's a, it's a different skill. You know, I can articulate my thoughts. I can articulate virtually any idea that comes to me, and I can articulate it seamlessly, which gives the impression that there's more in there than there actually is. It's just that everything that's in there can all come out of my mouth. <laughs> but that's a good thing about me. And I shouldn't try to not be able to explain her problems, but I have to stop and think whether or not I'm running my own story or whether I'm actually conscious of the fact that there's someone else on the planet besides me. I had a friend who, she wasn't a friend, she was an acquaintance, I said the only difficulty is that she doesn't tend to know that there's anybody on the planet but her. She just talks and talks and... It's just like, she just acts like she's the only person on the planet. And that's not attractive. So you've got to work on bringing those qualities up. And then that discriminating energy will, everybody will want it. You know, people will line up outside your door because you'll be able to clarify for them and help them make things better. But only if you've got the other in place. And it all begins from concentrating on the good. Not 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 seeing how things could be better, but just always on the good. Let's make a good thing better. And it's great fun to tell the truth, but always in a positive way. There was this woman who drove all of us crazy, and Swami said, don't you just love her intensity? <laughs> no, actually, sir, I don't. But it was such a nice way to put it, you know. She's so intense about everything she does. Yes, sir. I would have phrased it differently, but yeah, that's the truth. (laughs) (laughs) All right, any comments or questions? right. Okay, number 278, total change of subject. Don't mix with people too closely, Master counseled us. The desire for outward companionship is a reflection of the soul's desire for companionship with God. The more you seek to satisfy that desire outwardly, however, the more you will lose his inner company and the more restless and dissatisfied, in consequence, you will become. Now, you know, it's, this is interesting. Let me, think, let me think how to say this. Because we are a community and we do do a lot together. And then sometimes people justify a kind of solitude that is slightly out of step with the way our community flows on the basis of a higher spiritual dharma. And I don't mean an appropriate solitude. I myself like to spend a great deal of time alone. Um, So what he's really talking about is a restless need to be with people also. Because sometimes there's just this... Loneliness that we're trying to assuage with company, where we're not at peace with our own company, and and the way he puts it, you know, it's just too much desire to be always in the company of others. Is the soul really wants to be with God, and it's just trying to distract itself from it? There's a Swamiji made the comment that that there's an underlying sad note to all his music. And sometimes people will say that. If you're sensitive, you feel that. And in a very real sense, it's because there's an underlying sad note to all of human life. I know that's a really depressing thing to say. But there's just a kind of existential impossibility about being a human being. I've been been contemplating that a lot lately, that what I think of as specific situations... It's not really specific at all. It's not really that so-and-so got cancer. It's not really that this one never was able to get married. It's not really that this relationship has proved disappointing. It's not really that the young beautiful wife had an automobile accident and was disabled in some way. I mean, it's not any of that. It's that that's the nature of human life. And, And I think I, at least, have spent a really long time not really been quite willing to, to look at that, even though many people would think me quite cynical about things. But on a far deeper level, I've just been holding out and hoping it wasn't true. You know, just the, the real... I mean, in this, a real understanding of that is what causes a person to be born and to renounce the world at the age of seven and go off to the Himalayas. Or to enter a convent at the age of 13. You know, or the seminary. Just because some part of you just knows, and it isn't really because you're free of desires. That's a misunderstanding. In fact, you may be filled with desires of many kinds that you have to fight for a long time. But some part of you has really figured out that it's not what it seems, and it's just not going to work. And, and there's, a, 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 there's a melancholy in that. That's, it's, it's very tricky. There's a bliss behind it, but there's an actual melancholy in it. And that's what Master is saying here. Even though friendship is a fundamental attribute of ananda, And Swami even went so far as to say one of the purposes of Ananda is to demonstrate to the world what true friendship looks like. And Swamiji was very inclusive and and very social, very outgoing and social a great deal of the time. He involved people, he was just always in company, he was not a solitary yogi, I mean by a long shot. He wrote books and spent a lot of time in seclusion doing his work, but he was extremely outgoing. And I mean, not only in person, but once email came up, there are people there's so many people, really literally hundreds of people, who had these long email relationships with Swamiji. I mean the last, one of the last things he did before he died was he checked his email. Because he always checked his email often. And especially early in the morning, because he was in touch with so many people and communicating with so many people, he needed to know if somebody needed to hear from him. You know, as it happened on that particular time, either he wasn't able to respond or there was nothing to respond to. But that was just what he was. But that's different than, than hoping to get something from the world around you that will only come to you from God. And the balance point between letting that fact make you really sad and depressed and just being able to just see it for what it is and go on. But even Swamiji at the very end of his life, but it's partly what happens to even great souls when they're getting ready to leave this world as they begin to repudiate it. Swamiji so said, and he, he only refers to this very lightly in The Path. He doesn't, he actually in private conversation he spoke about it a little more strongly. And in The Path he talks about how at the end of Master's life he began to push people and things away. And there's one incident in there where this woman, it was Shraddha, her name was Sister Shraddha, and she was doing something for Master, and when she came out of his room, she burst into tears and just said, I just can't please him. I can't do anything right for him anymore. And Swami talked about how Master was just himself, just breaking the ties and, you know, just pushing everything away, and also just allowing himself to feel the rejection of this world, which from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace uh, to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of the world. Just think about what that really means. From perfect freedom, you, you really take it on. That's what they say. The avatar really takes it on. He lives the, the disappointments. That was what Swami said in the reading on Sunday. You know, the disappointments of this world, the avatar really lives it. Master's... Lifelong friend, dear Ananda, betrayed him for the umpteenth time in all of their incarnations. And Master was devastated by his friend's betrayal because it was inherently tragic. Even if Master knew in the end it would work out, that didn't make it less inherently tragic. And I think that's sort of the reality of this world. It just, it's inherently tragic. It never works out. It just doesn't. Because it can't, what, w- what the heart really needs can't be completely fulfilled in this world. This doesn't make... And then on the other side of it, then we're here to teach everyone about friendship. But part of what makes that friendship possible is that we're, we're not trying to get from one another that which we can never give to one another. It's very, it's a very, very subtle line. I'm, I, I'm in the middle of trying to sort it out. But I can feel that there's no freedom until it's really sorted out. Yeah. Just reminds me of a, um, a, a way to. Um, Resolve that struggle at least in part, and that is to constantly remind oneself that um, the only meaningful way to relate to another person is to serve the presence of God in them and and remember who they really are. Yeah, I mean the 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 joy. This is what's fun about it. You see, all of that does not end in being depressed. (laughs) All of that is the actual doorway to perfect bliss. And that's the paradox of the whole thing. When we finally understand and accept reality for what it is, and no longer resist reality, then we can actually experience reality. And the real experience is the power and the presence of God behind it all. But as long as we're trying to make something else what it is not, then we block what is. This is the, um, the, the, the non-lying in Patanjali's system. I can't remember if it's a, a, no. ni, a yama or a niyama. But non-lying, which is the lie we tell is that we fail to perceive reality for what it is. And as long as we fail to perceive it, we can't know the truth. So we have to stop lying about reality. Then we can suddenly know the truth because masters are blissful. It's, it's fascinating, really. It just goes on and on. Well, dear friends, that's the end of our time this evening. And we read 277 and 278, a giant one page of this book.